Gonna pick up where we left off last week. Last week's title was what was it, Jonathan? <laughs> I've got it. The heart of love. Sometimes it takes another to just kind of figure it out. But thank you for communicating that. I did have it down. But today, as I pondered moving back into Second Samuel, I felt the Lord was just having me continue on in this month of February. And so today is going to have a similar theme, but it is called Love Has a Heart. The heart of love, love has a heart. And so one of the things that we want to be able to continue to have addressed is doctrine concerning how we love one another. And in particular, it does have an emphasis to those of us who have been privileged by God to be married. And that can be very exciting because marriage has great complications to it. But it's intended to be a completing work by God through two very unique people. And so I really felt that the Lord was just nudging me to go a little bit further and not in the place of doctrine forsaking the central theme, which is God is love. Love is of God. That was clearly brought out last week. And so we're going to take a look at some passages that you should be familiar with, but it may have a new resonance to it. And so our texts will be also so noted in Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. So you can mark your Bibles there. Love has a heart. There's an acronym which I considered. It may not be original, but that is when we take a word and we put value, a phrase that can help capture the fullness of the word with regard to what we're saying. And so helping at least myself to put some grounding in the teaching today, I took the word love, and I think the Lord would agree fully with this, that we start with God. And Jesus said something with regard to love in which it has its origin, a genesis, which means the beginning. And we're all called, even in this journey, to return to our beginning. We used last week in Revelation in which the Lord called the church to return to its first love. And when we return to its first love, which is him, then it helps us to put in perspective all love, which is to be translated very uniquely very appropriately, for culture is saying things about love that are not true, contrary to God. But when we get into doctrine, we understand a perspective on the mechanics of love. So just for your notes, it might be something that interests you. In Matthew, obviously, 12, at about verse 30, the first letter, standing for love, is love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It begins with the heart. Love the Lord with all your heart. In the Psalms that we have been going through, which is Psalm 119, 
The psalmist is crying out, Lord, let me not have a divided heart. I don't want to be divided in my heart for you by the things that also at times distract me from you. I don't want there to be a division in my home. I don't want there to be a division in my church. I don't want there to be a division in my nation. But Lord, it has to start that my heart is not divided with regard to my love for you. So Matthew, in that particular passage, Jesus speaking it brings us back to the beginning. I think that's a good start. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, that's the unique signature that God has put on your personality that translates into that beautiful expression that people know you for. There aren't a lot of people that know me as I once was as a baby because I was altogether different. People begin to have impressions of me far distant from my image or the photographs reveal of me and they do so based on a personality, traits that seem to be consistent from the time of my birth to maturing through the time now of manhood. Ran into, and some of you met him, Micah Young, who came out, former student. We really haven't seen each other in almost 20 years except for brief tags. And what we both came to the conclusion of, as we're changing, there are some things that have not changed. And that's how we've identified with each other. The things that would be the gold standard of God in developing our character. But love needs to have its anchor in what Jesus said. And so when we also look at the soul, when we look at the heart and we look at the mind, the Lord asks us, and it's a part of doctrine, that we're to have our minds renewed. We renew our minds in the scriptures. We gain understanding about a renewal based on protocols, principles, doctrine, the points that are true that help us to make adjustments that we need. And then, of course, when we see in this as well strength, there is a strength that fades. I don't think I'm quite as strong as I once was. I find that to be true in things that I can't do quite as well. But this strength is also given to us by God in times of weakness. He strengthens us. And so whatever remains in strength that you have is God's. These component parts are important as far as what the Lord says is love. So let's go to the O. The O is what we're doing right now. We're here worshiping God. We're receiving instruction and he asks us to obey his word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obey his word. We move into the third letter, and it's important as well. Value his works. In the Psalms, we have been reading about many of the Psalms that David has penned poetically, in which he has marveled at the handiworks of God. And we cannot forsake a beautiful Psalm which teaches us concerning life within the womb. We value the works of God. We value the work of God in marriages that God has given through the institution that he has ordained. We place great value on it. 
because he's making a statement about himself. Many find themselves confused about the church. It's not just an institution for Bible study, for prayer or worship. We are actually a conglomeration where this, this beautiful orchestration and organism that he identifies as his bride. It's difficult to, per se, believe because we're very dimensional. This is outside of our dimension, but God proclaims that as we sit here, he sees us as his bride, singular. And yet the gifts of the Spirit indwelling within us make us very multidimensional, singular and yet multidimensional, beautiful. God's in love with us. When we understand that the Lord loves his bride, even when you may feel unloved, you need to turn that back as a tribute to God. He's the lover of our soul. He's the one who has created us. He's put his signature of approval upon us. And you cannot love anyone, even within a marriage, you cannot love anyone within culture, even through friendships, if you've not established a love for God, a love likened to what makes your heart beat. All of us have had heartbeat moments. And we'll talk about idioms that proclaim that the culture is striving to identify facets of love and the heart, what it means. But I think that's an important part of this, to value his works. And his works within man are marvelous. His works within marriage are amazing. And in this fourth letter, E, edify. And it's got some real important, I think, clues in it as to what we can do in expressing love, being the recipients of love. And what does it mean when love grows cold? What does it mean when we get old? What does it mean when the heart doesn't beat as it once did? That time when it's first love, first sight, first connection. Those are meant to be authentic. God uses them to draw us to himself. Many times people are clueless about that. Everything related to love and how we feel is actually God tagging our hearts on what it's truly like to live a life of love for him. Love has a heart, God's heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus says. Obey his words. Take note. Value his works and edify. That being said in several points, build up from the foundation. What does the foundation mean? It keeps things firm, keeps things in place. Homes are not built on dirt without a foundation that is anchored properly. Those are footings. There's different kinds of shorings. I'm not in particular a carpenter, though I've done some. And I'm not a concrete layer. Micah was the gentleman you met on Thursday. The foundation, though, scripturally is what Christ has laid.
what faith is built on. The worlds were framed by faith, by the word of God. And so I like the implication there, built up from the foundation to do what? In this case, in application to love, to restore. Is there someone that you need to restore for the sake of love? Because love has a heart. Is there someone you need to rebuild because of love, because they've been broken down? Is there a repair in the breach because of love? What kind of love would have to repair a breach? Well, love reaches out to where there's a chasm that has broken either a foundation or a confidence, and it rebuilds. It's willing to put its hands back to that project of God's. Most of us, when we drop something that is fragile and it's important to us, what do we do? We get out the crazy glue. We hope that it breaks in pieces that will allow those fissures to rejoin with glue. It kills us when it crumbles into slivers and dust. And that does happen. But I'm quite mindful that God, in terms of relationships, never allows that to be the final conclusion. There's always enough that God can put it back together and he allows us and compels us to be responsible for that. So what are we to restore, rebuild, and repair? Quite simply this, the object of God's affection. And that's the one that we are in love with. That's the people within the church that God loves and has died for. So a simple word, but very complex. Maybe this can work for you. I think that it worked for me. Just giving me another fresh perspective and kind of a, a means by which I can evaluate. How are things going? What is it that the Lord is touching my heart to do better in? And by the way, that's all God expects is do better. Do better. These are some of the idioms, though. See if you catch any of them and have used them. There's well over 30. An idiom is simply a phrase that attaches itself to a word or words, gives a picture. These are just nine. All heart. He's all heart. She's all heart. All heart. When we hear that, we feel pretty confident. That's a person I can trust. That's someone I don't need to fear. You're all heart. There's charity within you. There's the substance of giving of love that's been noted. Second one, have a heart. <laughs> that's somebody you hope has a heart that turns with compassion towards you, pities you is willing to do something than what appears to be the inevitable. Have a heart. Or this one. Their heart isn't in it. Their heart is just not in it. That's something that by observation means it's not tuned into what 
I need to what it is I have an urgency for. My heart goes out. That's where we have heard what someone's going through, and for them we empathize and sympathize. Heart to heart, that's when people connect, and the connection is communication, and it's accomplishing something. Melt your heart. Sometimes it's food that melts my heart. But this is not that which is being spoken of. It's the deep sentiment of being touched by someone. Most importantly, though, and I will say this again to repeat, how has God melted your heart? What does he do to do that? The Lord touches my heart through songs. Just can melt me. I hear phrases. I marvel at melodic passages, at orchestrations. I'm going, how in the world did that get put on paper? My goodness, what was that person thinking about in the language of poetry that's resonating to my heart? My heart melts with music and poetry. It also melts in marriage. I'm an easy melter. And I find that women have the gift of melting the heart of their men. I melt really easy in musicals. Not many in this generation appreciate them. And the musicals always melt me. Those were classic. It portrayed life as honestly a beautiful play with a happy ending, with all of the other stuff mixed in. And so I would honestly rather watch a musical with my happy ending than I would with other types of movies that can also catch my attention. Warrior kind of movies. I like them, but musicals are what touch my heart. Heart of glass, it implies that someone with fragile heart breaks real easy. Opposed to a heart of steel. Most men here would say, before I found God, actually observed that he was finding me at a heart of steel. And the Lord allowed a circumstance, a touch, a work of grace, to break you like glass. All of a sudden, you don't have the steel heart. Most of us here would say, I do not have a heart that is of steel because of how the Lord has touched me. But I like that. Bear your heart, meaning that you're transparent. The transparency is always best, reserved within the construct, the protection of a marriage. It can be dangerous outside of that. To bear your heart, you know, the love of the Lord is one in which he bore his heart and actually broke his heart for us. And so the best person to bear your heart to is God. He loves to hear what we so easily will let others hear. He's our first connection. He's our first love. 
One of the ways that we test our love with God is how frequently we talk to him as lovers. And verse 9, which I think brings us also to a segue coming into the scriptures, is this change of heart, how we need to have changes of heart. If our heart will not change, then no matter what our mind may agree to, it will be an impossible transfiguration. We need to have a transfiguration, not simply a reformation of things that we want to do, ought to do, pledge to do, but actually where the Holy Spirit comes in and makes a regenerative work. We become altogether different than this moment. But it takes someone to do it. Whenever there is the need for a change of heart, somebody's got to agree to it, or you will have two disagreeable people. And everybody starts at the same place, in my opinion, on your knees, humble before the Lord, willing to, as 1 Corinthians said, bear up with patience, having a confidence assurance that God is with us in what we are willing to have done in us. And we've got to give that opportunity, much like seed that is planted, furrowed, buried, watered, sunshined on to break through. So that's kind of a setup of doctrine today. Moving over to our text, which you will find right now, if you'll go there with me, Ephesians chapter 5. When we went back to the origin of love, God, when we saw what he intended to do in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, he was projecting his passion upon two people, a man and a woman, husband and wife, and all that he had created for them and the fellowship that he desired to have with them. So Paul, in writing this, is actually penning the doctrine of what 1 Corinthians 13 was giving us an autobiographical position of God concerning love. These are points for husbands and wives to consider. In this first part in chapter 5, verse 22, this is what he begins with. Remember in the book of Genesis, he began with Adam. He begins right now in Ephesians in the address of the woman. Don't be offended. He will conclude with an exhortation to the man. He starts with the woman, and he says, with regard to her, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why, you may ask. Because in the 23rd verse, the word declares, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body, 
Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. This is written as a protocol in how to get things in order, but it requires a husband. For if there is in fact the word which is to submit, then what does that submission basically state? It means that that man who's been charged in a likeness of authority over his wife is in the likeness of Christ, who is authority over the church, meaning he exercises with great grace, great understanding. We'll find that out in some other passages. It's not simply submit for the sake of submitting. It's submitting for the sake of the Lord. And it's under the presumption that this man is operating, governing, as the Lord governs the church. There's nothing that is, if you would, perfect about a man, nor is there anything perfect about a woman. But when we understand that it's a perfection of God through these unique individuals, and he says, this is the manual of how we do it, it draws us back to him, right? Most of us receive manuals and the things that we buy that have like 18 different languages, and we're always looking for our language. God says, there's a language that I speak, it's love. I've written about it in the word, and if you will read it, and even in what you do not understand about it, trust me that I can make you wise that you will be likened as unto me as I govern the church. I govern you on how you can govern your family. And so we're all a work in prog progress. I think we would all agree to that. Submission, though, means that that word that is to be honored and obeyed by that husband even in what may be awkwardness, clumsiness, even inerrancy can be rightly corrected by the act of submission by the woman who esteems her husband as the Lord is esteemed by the church. No one comes in here to worship the pastor. The pastor comes in here to worship with the people of God the Lord who presides over this work. And every single person in here is an attribute of God. That means a facet of who he is to one another, the giftings that the Holy Spirit has given. Such an important word, though, because our culture has learned to reject submission, and in particular in relationships that are qualified as married. It continues though, and this is important. Verse 25, the emphasis is now on the husband. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How did the Lord give himself for the church when in fact it wasn't a word that he used while in the tenure 
of a walking earthly ministry. It's because we find that out later in the book of Acts. Where he gave his life was on the cross. He sacrificed himself for a vision yet to be manifested and understood by Paul to pen to us. And so in real effect, the Lord saw a beautiful woman that he was willing to give his life for, his bride. Beauty beyond compare. Beauty that would exact from him his life, everything. He wasn't ashamed of her. He was not asking anything more from her than simply that she be in love with him. And that's still a compelling word in Revelation. Return to your first love. But this is really a very powerful word for men because it means in like manner, similitude, we are to love our wives. And the Lord works on us in that way. And we are a work in progress. We can be steeled by the demands of vocation. We can be hardened in heart because of feeling miserable in that role. We found out we're not quite the Greek warriors that we once were. We find out that things that perhaps we so easily expressed in the courtship are more difficult in the hardships. We never hear that about the Lord. He loved while on earth in the tenure of one who attracted the multitudes and was at the same time rejected by the multitudes. And he loved. Loved to the point of death and actually satisfying the requirement of dying for his bride. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So our model is the Lord. We talk to him. I mean, to one degree in our humanity, think of what kind of bride we could say we are to him. And what does he do? He loves us. All of us, in spite of our failings. He loves us in faithfulness. So the charge is not an easy one, but it is a command. We are therefore to love as husbands, our wives, just as Christ also loves the church and gave himself for her. Lord, how can I give myself for her this day, this next week, this month, making up for the years, the new year ahead? When is that new day? When is the week? When is the month? When is the year? My thoughts are is it's right now. It's right now. It says this, in verse 26, that he, this is the Lord, might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he. See, this is the work that the Lord partners with the husband to do. We can't sanctify our, our wives. But he does in the bond of marriage. And this indicates that this is a spiritual life that men are obligated to bring their wives into. 
very often we can find that many men have been brought into a sanctified life through the heart that their wives have had for the Lord before we met them. It's very attractive, spiritual women are very attractive. And they actually get a better understanding of loving God much earlier than men do. We're slow learners. We're still on the gridiron. We're still trying to prove ourselves. We're not quite keen about getting on our knees. We're not really comfortable with saying, I love Jesus. That's not true with women. The women are marked in the scriptures as highly devoted to the Lord, to the cause of what he was about in his message. Women are very easily able to entrust in the things of God, while at the same time, without a head, they are also prone and have been proven to be misled. That's why there's a leadership that has been bestowed in the church upon men to lead. It's a headship. We didn't ask for it. God gave it. It works out great, though, if we learn those protocols, if we understand that this sanctification happens in what we're all doing today. We're being washed in the water of his word. Devotional time, when you take up your Bible, because the Bible has become a foundational, important book in your home, and together you're reading it, or privately reading it, or you're coming to morning worship, having read it, it's an important part of the process which Paul describes here as the sanctification. And the Lord's doing that work. That's why very often some of the breaches that happen are mended and closed because there has been responsibility taken by the man to bring the word in, by the woman to receive the word, both of them, with the same passion and conviction, this is what we will live by. This is how we will manage our affairs. This is how we will take care of the heart that God has given to us. It says that in verse 27 that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Remember, the church now is being likened in this epistle as a bride. And it says that in this likening, it's a glorious church, a glorious bride not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And this is the work of the Lord. Therefore, as of last week, when I said, what was the rib signifying? Oh, the protective work of God for that heart that God has given to a woman. But that rib also is a part of Adam. And therefore, not to be attacked. We work responsively and considerately towards one another. And now to husbands again, personally, one brings us both in to the central figure of love, Jesus, and then identifies us as a part of his church, responsibilities, his work to sanctify. And then the husbands, it says this, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. One of the difficulties there is that there can be rejection of the love of a man who has been commanded to love his wife as his own body. 
that's always the case. It can be on both sides of it, but withholding from one another our bodies can greatly pre cause problems. And that isn't what the Lord wants. He wants us to come together, to be together. But this word right now is concerning the husband, which means the sacrifice. What you do for yourself, will you do for her? Will you do so thoughtfully? And as you thoughtfully do something for her, the implication is there will be initiation and response. Will she respond? She doesn't respond. Will you continue to initiate? Will you continue to love? That's always, if you would, the emphasis of the final letter in the acronym, edify, build up, get that foundation report, look into it, take a measurement about it, repair, loving their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. He cherishes the church. A group that I really admired and was very young when they came out, but the association, but they came out with a great song called Cherish, and it's one of the songs that, as I've listened to it too over the many years, can melt me. I did it my way doesn't melt me. Frank Sinatra did not melt me. When I do things my way in my marriage, I realize that the Lord says, would you flip another album on this bin and do Cherish? It's a great song. There were many love songs penned in the 60s in particular because people were love-deprived. Now we're actually love-saturated, but it's not the right type of love. It actually is more akin to lust, but it's trying to be expressed to the term love. But in the 60s, there was a dry and barren land. And that generation wanted to know something that they had not experienced, had been pulled away from. And ultimately, the Lord's love broke through in the cry of a generation to be loved. Not free love, but committed love. Many wonderful songs, I do believe, God gave to men and women that just never understood. He was speaking to a generation to seek love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And most in particular, the God of love. Verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, verse 32, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The mystery is God gathering us as men and women together and saying, you're my bride. But there's also a mystery when as husbands and wives, we need to have his heart for what it is within the church. Nevertheless, verse 33, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. You see, submission, it opened with, but it's now commission. I commission you men to love your own wives as himself. 
comma, but let the wife see that she respect her husband. In essence, this summarizes in two words, love and respect. Many of you have been through that series with us several times. The man is to love his wife. The woman is to respect her husband. When these two things are employed by both unique parties, then there is an homogenation. God mixes it all up. He blends the cream in with the milk. And it's not one or the other, it's both. But it's not that a man doesn't respect her husband. Because that's a part of love as well. But as an attribute towards the husband, God is saying this is really central to that man's operating system. When he's respected, he becomes your champion. When he's disrespected, he becomes your donkey. Just a beast of burden and a burden like a beast. It's a principle. We see it all the time. Paul simply makes it very clear. These two things are component parts to having the very best of what God has joined together. And nobody has it perfectly, but it is that a man requires respect. And I do not believe the adage is accurate whatsoever. He earns my respect. No, he doesn't earn. God has commanded that he is respected. There are people that we don't respect, but the position and the office as a husband, as a wife, warrants both love, regardless, and respect, regardless. When those are given as protocols that the Lord has said, this will make your situation better and actually begin perfecting you. We don't argue it. It's a discipline. Everything operates off of principles and precepts, and they have benefits or consequences. The Lord says, Respect and love is how I work in the mechanics of the unique design of a woman. She is wired to love, but that love seems to be very much activated when her husband loves her. A man is wired for respect, and therefore when he is respected, the reciprocation seems to be in the overflow of love. If you say he must prove himself to be respected, your proof will probably never be able to satisfy you because it's operating off of condition, not obedience. In closing, and I'll get there, I think I'm going to have just a little bit of time to look into this. So in chapter 3 of First Peter, and this again is doctrine. Wives, likewise, Peter writes, be submissive, verse 1, chapter 3, First Peter, to your own husbands, that even, because this will help you, even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. 
So respect actually is demonstrated through submission. And the Lord says there's power in it because you'll win his heart even when he has been disobedient to the charge of loving you. But if there's resistance based on refusing to respect because you believe that it has to be earned, then you're competing against God. You are not teaming up with God. Be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, and there's a lot of husbands that do not obey the word, they don't even know the word. They occupy a place in your home and at times in the church, but they have not yet apprehended the love of God, and they're not, they're not fully in love with God. And if they're not fully in love with God, it is very difficult for them to be fully in love with you. What does God say? You're a godly woman. You get love. I've wired you for that. Submit to them that even in this time of their life, as they are disobedient, they will be changed and they will become initiators of love because I've commanded them to love. I just love that. It's a great passage of scripture. Even to the point, it says in verse six, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and not afraid of any, it says, terror. Not afraid of them with any terror, not afraid of life, just loving God. That lordship is a very interesting title. It's likened as if you would, huh, he has a headship over me. I want him to earn respect, but the Bible says that he is to have respect, even as Sarah addressed Abraham as Lord. Concluding in verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them. This is a command. Sometimes we have too much of events going on in which men are drawn from dwelling with their wives to repelling from their wives. We're to dwell with them. There's a hard day's work. The Beatles said eight days a week. But in one of their songs, they were touting if you would, the reward of coming home after a hard day's night. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. So if respect is required of the woman, the man is obligated to honor his wife, dwelling with her. You see, it's not all about the wife, what she's got to do. Much is about what they get to do. And in this case, with honor. It says this to the weaker vessel. Don't be insulted. Many men have weaknesses too. But this indicates that in the mechanism of being a woman, there are areas of your sensitivity that define you as being not massively strong, but you are vulnerable. And the Lord's saying to the man, Accept her vulnerability and minister. Minister in this way with understanding and honor. As being heirs, notice this, together 
with the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, men understand this to mean that if it isn't really going well in the communication area or in the fulfillment of love within the home, God says, I want to address that prayer, but I can't yet address, address that prayer. The Lord puts a mandate upon us. If you don't want your prayers hindered, then connect with your spouse that she might surrender. See, walls are built up when somebody refuses to make any move at all. And it's not simply surrender Dorothy. It means that when there has been a lack of love shown by the husband towards the wife, not understanding her, then the wall will be built. And therefore, the submission that she's inclined to honor the Lord with becomes difficult for her to even break through that barrier. God says, if you obey my principles in the area of submission and respect and of understanding and of love, you're going to have a marvelous, miraculous, living situation. That's the closing of doctrine on this area. And I think that it was important because, you know, the Lord, he's working on all of our hearts. And he sees our marriages, and even what some may say, I don't have a marriage. He sees you in his marriage with him. And therefore, the application simply may be to you. Hmm. As I am alone, I am not alone. God loves me. My maker is my husband. I will do that which touches his heart. For those of us that have the privilege and responsibility of being in marriage, God says, show him how it's done. Let him know that you are a miracle in the making and ordained to make a difference on how to do things right, how to repair breaches, how to magnify my name, how to express in the giftings of the Holy Spirit that I'm alive and well and I have prepared a place for you and there's a banqueting table that all will be invited to who see me and you, your marriage. I wanted to share something really quick to capture Genesis chapter 2. I think I can find it. <laughs> I might have to go to the index. Yes, there's a baby cooing. Thank you for the sound effects. I'm going to take you back to the beginning. A poem that I wrote that actually is a song hasn't been recorded yet. Father, I heard your voice in the wind. I awoke when you spoke to breathe your spirit in. I felt the warmth 
invade my flesh. I knew the touch of your caress, and I arose from dust to bless your holy name. As we strolled paradise in the Garden of Eden, such a splendid sight, your creation, O oh God, as we strolled paradise in the Garden of Eden, you gave me delight at your banquet of love. And I recall the way you placed me in your land. A private spectator, as seeds fell from your hand. While you instructed me as you caused them to grow, I learned the ways of God in everything you showed. I tasted nectar from the fruit of all your trees and quenched my thirst where the four mighty rivers stream. Every command you spoke, I memorized by heart. I sang you songs while cultivating in your park as we strolled paradise in the Garden of Eden. Such a splendid sight, your creation, O oh God. As we strolled paradise in the Garden of Eden, you are my delight at your banquet of love. Yet deep inside me was a yearning of my soul as you assigned me tasks to realize my role. You brought before me every animal you made, and as I named them each, I understood my state. I was aware that as I lived, I was alone. You qualified my need by giving me this home. So I lifted up my hands to yield my flesh, collapsing to the ground as you put me to rest. Father, I heard her whisper in my ear. She cried as I sighed. Your spirit drew us near. We felt a warmth invade our flesh. We knew <laughs> your touch through our caress. Last line. And we knelt down to pray and bless your holy name. As we strolled paradise in the Garden of Eden, she's a splendid sight, my companion. Oh, God. As we strolled paradise, you gave us great delight at your banquet of love. October 13th, 16th, 1993. Before that reality was even mine. It's a great song, great poem. It captures, I think, Genesis chapter 2 and the heart of God concerning love. So, Poet Laureate for today's closing. But doesn't love touch you? It just kind of touches you. It's, I believe, the Lord's heart to touch us, bring us back. Be enamored with him, fall in love with him. 